Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Corporate media and gatekeepers try their best to ignore the national movement against racism, and they also ignore ongoing police brutality against peaceful protesters. We speak to Scott Michaelman of the ACLU, D.C. This was no accident that the MPD forces were in formation just a block away, and that when they fired on the fleeing demonstrators, They were not only coordinating with the federal government in what will go down as a shameful suppression of demonstrators' rights, but also violating the Constitution. And after more than a decade of doing the bidding of corporations, seizing homes of Americans and poisoning communities with fracking, drilling, and pipelines, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission may be forced to end its abuse. We speak to veteran activist Ted Glick. FERC allows companies just to come in and take people's land, gives them the authority to do that. Again, without them being able to even to go get into court, they still can get eminent domain. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the national movement against racism, sparked by police brutality, continues to be targeted by police with more brutality and other acts of state violence. In Portland, Oregon, a 26-year-old protester, Donovan LaBella, suffered a fractured skull and required facial reconstruction surgery after he was shot in the head on July 11th with a so-called less-than-lethal rubber-type bullet by federal police sent into the city by the Trump administration. Witnesses and video reveal that LaBella was holding a sound speaker across the street from a line of federal military-clad police when he was hit. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon tweeted this week that the Trump administration must take responsibility for LaBella's critical injuries and for federal officers acting like a quote-unquote occupying army. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said that federal troops are not helping to de-escalate the tensions there, but rather are escalating them. He tweeted Tuesday to Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf to either keep federal agents inside of Portland's buildings that they claim to protect or please leave Portland altogether. In Louisville, Kentucky, civil rights groups are calling on prosecutors to drop felony charges against 87 peaceful protesters who held a sit-in Tuesday at the home of Attorney General Daniel Cameron. The demonstrators were demanding that the Louisville police officers who killed Breonna Taylor be arrested and prosecuted. Taylor, a 26-year-old emergency medical technician, was shot to death inside her own home in March during a no-knock drug raid. Here in D.C., the ACLU is striking back at this continued police brutality and state repression by expanding its lawsuit against the Trump administration to include D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department for its involvement in the June 1st attack on peaceful protesters and journalists. More on this lawsuit after headlines. And there are updates this week in D.C. about the toppling of monuments and the removal of racist names. To Colin Michael has more. As the Washington NFL football team formally dropped its racist name this week, D.C. was once again at the epicenter of the current movement against racism and its celebrated symbols. 
Along with problematic sports franchises, the issue of removing controversial statues continues to be a significant topic among citizens and public servants alike. Young protesters want to see these obvious symbols of racism gone. They shouldn't be up in the first place, honestly. I mean, it's like worshipping people who didn't do any good, for real, for like, for half of like the population, for African American and minorities, you know. Uh, they supported, basically, racism and slavery, the Confederates, so that's pretty much, they should be down. Uh, I'm Dwayne, and uh, I came out to protest the injustice in this country. 25-year-old Jason Charter of D.C. has been arrested as a leader in the unsuccessful attempt to tear down the statue of Andrew Jackson in Lafayette Park near the White House and the successful Juneteenth toppling of the monument to Albert Pike, a Confederate general associated with the Ku Klux Klan terror group. Pike's statue was in northwest D.C., adjacent to the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police Department. Charter a part of the anti-fascist movement said on Twitter that he is innocent and that destruction of statues that glorify racists is a, quote, service to this nation, not a crime, end quote. Charter was released from custody on personal rec- recognizance. Also, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton announced that she will introduce legislation to remove the statue of Andrew Jackson from Lafayette Park, which was once the site of a slave market. Norton noted that not only was Jackson a slaveholder, but he was responsible for the Indian Removal Act, which led to the deaths of at least 4,000 Native Americans. She also said she will introduce legislation to remove the Emancipation Statue from Lincoln Park in D.C., which has long drawn controversy because it depicts black people kneeling at the feet of Abraham Lincoln and not taking an active part in their emancipation. I was on hand at the protest at the statue last month and spoke to D.C. Council President Phil Mendelson, who shared some of his thoughts. I don't think it should just be torn down by protesters. I think the history and the meaning of the statue is far more complicated, but I totally get it. What that statue says to people today is not where we want our public memorials to be communicating, and uh, that would be a reason to remove it. In D.C., the battle over monuments and official names of buildings and teams is moving to the halls of power from the streets where they started, at least for now. Um, Julian, I'm a thousand percent on board with the destruction of the statues that support racism because when we take down these statues, it shows like we're not standing for it anymore. This is a new generation. It's a revolution, evolution, and it's time for change. From Northwest Washington, D.C., for On the Ground. This is to Callan Michael. In other Black Lives Matter news this week, the Asheville, North Carolina City Council approved reparations for African-American residents. The unanimously passed resolution does not include direct payments. Instead, Asheville will make investments aimed at what it calls increasing minority home ownership and access to other affordable housing, increasing minority business ownership, and other strategies to grow equity and generational wealth closing the gaps in health care, education, employment and pay, neighborhood safety, and fairness within criminal justice, according to the resolution. Here in D.C. and around the country, workers are set to walk off their jobs Monday, July 20th, in the strike for black lives, an 8-minute and 46-second action marking the amount of time former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of George Floyd. They are demanding that the government and corporations abolish systemic racism. Unions 
Participating with social justice organizations include the Service Employees International Union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the American Federation of Teachers, United Farm Workers, Athena, Partnership for Working Families, the United Food and Commercial Workers, Communication Workers of America, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Amalgamated Transit Union, Fight for 15 and the Union, and the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. Also here in D.C., as Congress returns to session on Monday, July 20th, Black Lives Matter activists will be urging lawmakers to support the BREATHE Act, which was launched but not formally introduced just before recess by Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. With its far-reaching proposals to defund the police and the carceral state, the BREATHE Act is touted by activists like Black Lives Matter founder Patrice Cullors as the Civil Rights Act for the 21st century. At the core of the BREATHE Act is what's become clear to many of us. Policing as we know it needs to be drastically less powerful. I urge our leaders to be bold and courageous in this moment. For over four decades, the federal government has poured billions of dollars into police departments. Federal dollars have incentivized arrest, jail and prison construction, and the militarization of constantly growing police forces. And the truth is, all these resources spent have not made us safer. We can innovate new approaches to safety and accountability that better serve the needs of the people without creating massive gaps in our crisis response, without traumatizing and decimating communities. The BREATHE Act gets us closer to justice. Full text of the proposed legislation is at breatheact.org. But as Congress gets back in session, at the top of the list will be the passage of another stimulus package as provisions in earlier packages, such as the additional $600 in weekly regular unemployment assistance, expires. 2.23 million people filed new unemployment claims for the week ending July 11th. And as school districts around the country are only weeks away from their opening start dates, Donald Trump and his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, are getting real pushback from governors, mayors, educators, and health officials around the country for their threat to cut off financial assistance to public school districts that do not open for full-time in-person classes. The controversy could be sparking a new policy war that unites across the political spectrum about government reach and power. On the grounds, Thomas O'Rourke sat down with Washington Teacher Union President Elizabeth Davis recently to discuss the union's role and its chief concerns when it comes to reopening the schools here in the District of Columbia. As much as teachers have expressed the need to get back to in-person teaching, they also have expressed the need for us to do so safely, in a way that's going to be safe for students, and a way that's going to be safe for teachers and other school workers. They do not want to put our families or students at risk, or them and their families at risk. We have a number of teachers that have underlying health conditions, Uh, and of course, we want to ensure that all of those safety protocols that OSI, the Office of the State Superintendent of Education, said need to be in place, that CDC, DC Health, Tom, as you know, you were a teacher. You do know Uh that teachers have trust issues about what DCPS promised to deliver and sometimes fall short, but this is an instance where it is high risk, and they're not willing to trust DCPS to have those safety protocols in place, building sanitized PPE, especially when we already know 
that we do not have the funding in place to provide the PPE that's needed, to provide the devices that students will need in order to do remote learning. And even though we have a hybrid model that we are reopening with, all of our students are going to need to have connectivity. They're going to need Wi-Fi. They're going to need devices. We know that already. So why would we open not having those things in place? And of course, you know, transparency is not the order of the day in, the, in D.C., basically because we have not really received any plans that define what schools are going to look like when they reopen for in-person teaching. We've basically been asked to just trust the school system to do, deliver. And Tom, this is, that's not a good place for members who are concerned about being at home with their own school-aged children or being at home with family members that have underlying health conditions or having those underlying health conditions themselves to put themselves at risk or to put students at risk. I think it's unfair. Davis said in a statement on Thursday that the union gathered 4,000 signatures in less than 36 hours this week in their campaign to not open D.C. schools until they are safe. And finally, in culture and media, I recommend thegrayzone.com for their coverage of the controversial public letter on council culture on the Harper's Magazine website. Gray Zone Editor-in-Chief Max Blumenthal points out that there are writers and right-wing activists who are signers of the letter who have made a career by trying to block, censor, marginalize, and cancel voices on the left, especially those criticizing U.S. foreign policy or the apartheid state of Israel. There's a two-day international concert for Cuba happening July 18th and 19th to pay tribute to Cuba's heroic and outsized contribution to health care around the world as doctors have volunteered this year to serve in more than 26 countries. The program will broadcast live from Havana's Instituto Cubana de la Musica and from points around the globe while physical distancing is still observed. Go to Concert for Cuba on Eventbrite for more info. And those fighting to save historic Moses African Cemetery from further desecration in Bethesda, Maryland, invite the public to join them in demonstrations at the site every Tuesday and Wednesday. Write No Fear Coalition at AOL for more information. History this week, on July 14, 1789, the French Revolution began when a large crowd of workers stormed the Bastille, a near-empty royal prison and armory in central Paris, looking for arms and gunpowder. While killing the warden and a few guards and freeing a few prisoners, those storming the Bastille suffered almost 100 dead but acquired significant arms and gunpowder. This challenge to France's royal government came to represent the beginning of the end of French feudalism and the end of the royal house of Bourbon. And five years ago, on July 13, 2015, Sandra Bland died in police custody in Texas. In remembering her, the Movement for Black Lives wrote on their Facebook page, What precipitated this? A traffic stop over the failure to signal a lane change? She was 28. She was on her way back from filling out paperwork for a job she just secured at her alma mater, Prairie View A&M. She was targeted, she was thrown out of her vehicle, and to the ground. She was locked in a cage. And though the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science ruled her death a suicide, she was killed. Sandra Bland was killed by state-sanctioned violence, the violence of policing, the violence of the cash bail system, the violence of not having $500 bail, 
the violence of our carceral system, the patriarchal violence that is inflicted on black women, girls, and gender non-conforming folks at an alarming rate. And those are some of the headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. June 1st, 2020 will live in infamy as the day of a brutal crackdown between coordinated federal and local forces against peaceful protesters and journalists so that Lafayette Square would be cleared for President Trump's walk to a photo opportunity. Despite Police Chief Newsham's initial denials of Metropolitan Police Department involvement in the violence of that day, the ACLU's investigation has recently found video proof to the contrary, and the Metropolitan Police Department has been added as a defendant to the lawsuit Black Lives Matter D.C. v. Trump, which seeks redress for the violation of the constitutional rights of peaceful protesters when violent tactics were deployed to suppress them that day. Journalist, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist, media, I'm media, I'm media, I'm moving back. Oh, God. I'm, I'm just, just filming, just filming, just filming. Oh, my God. We spoke to Scott Michaelman, legal director of the ACLU of the District of Columbia, for details of MPD's involvement in suppressing protesters on that day and the call to accountability for them. Our investigation revealed that uh, MPD forces were stationed just one block away from Lafayette Square and fired tear gas at demonstrators as they were fleeing the further chemical irritants and charges and rubber bullets by the federal forces at Lafayette Square. So in one continuous action, the federal troops, along with Arlington County police, chased demonstrators away from Lafayette Square. And then MPD came in and, and continued to drive them further away from the square, being stationed at the intersection of 17th and 8th Street Northwest, just one block away. Chief Newsham uh, has been, at best, extremely misleading in the way he's been characterizing the district's role in these events. Uh, he said over and over, and MPD has said through spokespeople, that they had no involvement in the president's movement, very specifically, uh, because I think, I guess they want to make the point that they were not responsible for covering specifically his walk across Lafayette Square that day. Um, but what he doesn't say, what he hasn't said, and what he can't truthfully say is that they were not involved in the action 
against the demonstrators who were there because, of course, they were, and we have video evidence of that. We also have a right. photograph in which uh, an MPD supervisory officer, a white shirt, was meeting next to an MPD marked cruiser with uh, military officials, U.S. military officials, including the Army's chief of staff. So it, it seems based on the coordinated action, based on the frequent coordination between the federal government and MPD for the purposes of law enforcement as it regards presidential movements and based on at least one documented meeting, that, that this, this was no accident that the MPD forces were in formation just a block away and that when they fired on the fleeing demonstrators, they were not only coordinating with the federal government in what will go down as a shameful suppression of demonstrators' rights, but also violating the Constitution and uh, violating the rights of the protesters both to freedom of speech and to freedom from unreasonable seizures like the the shooting of tear gas against unarmed, unthreatening, fleeing demonstrators. The events over the last uh, number of weeks here in the district of law enforcement suppressing civil rights demonstrators is part of a, a sadly long and shameful tradition in our country during which the police have been, have been deployed and have acted in these moments in support of existing power structures against free speech and dissent and against the ideals of civil rights to which our nation professes to be committed. And whether the DC police's actions on June 1st are directly connected to the other incidents in which they've deployed force against protesters at Black Lives Matter Plaza and other downtown locations I can't say at this time, but it is it is troubling, certainly, for a city government to engage in aggressive tactics, engage in unprovoked violence against demonstrators, and also to go ahead and name a street after a cause that the city professes to support shortly after violently attacking those who profess to support it and those who have come out and demonstrated in support of it. So I think the, the district has really been talking out of two sides of its mouth uh, when, when dealing with this issue. On the one hand, the government clearly wants to say that it, that it stands with Black Lives Matter. On the other hand, on the street, uh, we're hearing very different stories from, from demonstrators and we saw very different uh, type of narrative play out on June 1st. Dustin Foley and his 15-year-old daughter are plaintiffs in the suit. They had come to offer sandwiches to the protesters. MPD fired additional tear gas on them, causing Foley's daughter breathing difficulty and physical distress as heard on the video. There's a child over here. The video the ACLU uncovered in its investigation documents MPD using tear gas and other tactics against those who had peacefully gathered on that day. 
for updates on Black Lives Matter DC versus Trump and the addition of MPD to the suit, visit the ACLU at acludc.org. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. so on last week's show we included news about the wins for the environmental movement and really for all of us who live breathe and drink water on earth the supreme court upheld rejection of a crucial permit for the keystone xl pipeline and that was within hours of the dakota access pipeline being shut down by a federal judge And then the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which would have crossed the Appalachian Trail, was canceled by Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, citing costs and legal challenges. And we know that project was set to cut through indigenous communities and historic African-American towns in West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina, such as Union Hill in Buckingham County, Virginia, founded by formerly enslaved men and women after the Civil War. But what we did not know last week was that there was another crucial win for all living things on Earth when the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that the way the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission does business is illegal. FERC, which has functioned as a sort of rubber stamp for the gas industry, allowing the disastrous expansion of fracking and pipelines across the country, has been engaging in what the court called a Kafkaesque scheme. Well, they said Kafkaesque. I said scheme to deny those opposed to expansion of gas or oil infrastructure any chance of succeeding against very powerful corporate interests. Well, for more on this issue, that might seem, it might seem to some of you nerdy or kind of wonky, but this is really key to why so much of our remaining pristine landscape in this country is crisscrossed by pipelines. So I'm honored to be joined by Ted Glick, who has spent more than 50 years as a human rights activist, most recently as founder and activist with Beyond Extreme Energy, and before that as a national campaign coordinator for our DMV friends, Chesapeake Climate Action Network. As a selective service draft resistor during the Vietnam War, he spent 11 months in prison, and he has been arrested 24 times for acts of nonviolent civil disobedience, including 11 times since October 2006 on climate and climate justice issues. Welcome back to the show, Ted. Thanks, Esther. I appreciate it. Good to be on your show again. So tell us about this process that the Energy Regulatory Commission has been engaged in and examples of the egregious impact 
Yeah, the basic thing that FERC has been doing for 12 years is they have been preventing landowners or communities, local groups that are, you know, where there's a pipeline, uh, a frack gas or a gas pipeline being proposed. They have prevented those local people from going to court to challenge FERC giving these pipeline companies a permit. That's the basics of what FERC has been doing for 12 years. The way it works, or the way it used to work, because it doesn't work like this anymore because of this 10-to-1 slapdown of FERC by the D.C. Court of Appeals. It was a really decisive defeat for FERC, which is it's very significant. But what the way it used to work is that, according to FERC's regulations, after they grant, they give a permit to a pipeline company to, to build a pipeline, any group that wants to challenge that needs to first file a administrative appeal, which means you need a challenge FERC and appeal to FERC to overturn, you know, the, the permit that they gave. And by law, what it says is, or what, it's, what it says and what FERC used to do was that they have 30 days, within 30 days, they need to respond to that administrative appeal. And what FERC has been doing all these years, as there's been this proliferation of all these pipelines and gas infrastructure and fracking and everything, what they've been doing is that on like day 30, they will say, we haven't made a decision yet and we're extending the amount of time for us to deliberate and make our decision. And then what has happened is that it's been an average of seven months that they have then taken um, for them to make their decision. And their decision, by the way, in every single case, is to reject this appeal from a local group. Um, they, they reject every single one, but they take a, an average of seven months to do it. It has sometimes taken like 15 months. I mean, I personally was involved, and I'm still involved, with a situation up in New Jersey where I live, where a gas compressor station and a pipeline we fought it. We, we filed an administrative appeal. We waited 15 months. And in the meantime, what FERC did was they allowed the company to go ahead and do all of the construction, all of the work. So that by the time they turned us down for the administrative appeal we had filed, everything was done. And that's happened with other projects. So this has been under challenge for years by different groups. And finally, the Court of Appeals made the right decision. So as of now, local groups will be able, after 30 days, this is one of the things that the Court of Appeals decision said, after 30 days, no matter what FERC says, if FERC says that they need more time, it doesn't matter. Now, on the 31st day, um, a local group can go to court and they can file a legal motion, try to stop any construction, try to stop any tearing down of trees try to get into court on the basic challenge of the permit. So it, it's a big decision because this throws FERC into some disarray in terms of how they do their thing now. And they actually, the uh, FERC chairman has called upon Congress to actually step in and give them some direction in terms of how they should deal with this uh, new situation, which could be very helpful because it could open up the possibilities of getting you know, progressives in Congress as this issue was being dealt with, to bring in other aspects 
of all of the ways that FERC just runs over people and like has no regard for the climate crisis and it essentially ignores it. So there's a number of good things about this decision. Uh, it could end up being like uh, very significant in terms of the absolute necessity of uh, shifting away from fossil fuels to renewables. Yeah, because as you were describing the situation, I wonder, just because what's happening in D.C. is just so outrageous, I just wondered if FERC will just speed up their process so that they will just deny people's claims or uh, appeals uh, quicker. Well, that would be good. See, if they, if they deny the appeals, like within that 30-day period where they're supposed to answer, that then gives local groups, local people, uh, the ability to go to court right away. They okay. don't, have, don't have to, they don't have to wait seven months or 15 months before they can file, you know, a legal challenge in court to what FERC has done. Okay. So that's definitely helpful. It definitely hurts the gas industry. You know, the gas industry clearly has been like they've been working hand in glove with FERC to just frustrate the ability of local folks to get FERC into court, FERC and, and, the, and the pipeline company or the gas company, you know, whatever, whichever one it is, which, are, which you know, are building and want to build this new infrastructure. So in addition to the whole time aspect of this, people in communities across the country just must feel like the government was working against them. I mean, I've read or seen uh, yeah. or heard people as a homeowner, a landowner, or just a person in a community who wants to breathe, you know, air, <laughs> they must feel so angry and so frustrated that their own government agency is working against them. Uh, yeah, no, one of the fascinating things about this particular sector, I guess you'd call it, of the overall kind of environmental climate justice movement in this country, is, is that this is so blatant, this kind of stuff, eminent domain, you know, FERC allows companies just to come in and take people's land, gives them the authority to do that. Again, without them being able to even to go get into court, they still can get eminent domain. Um, what that has meant is that people whose politics literally go from the right to the left uh, and in the middle um, have often joined forces together around this particular issue. You know, in some ways, this issue, I think, is... Uh, kind of helped some with uh, dealing with, um, frankly, racism on the part of white people in kind of more rural and uh, you know, outer suburb areas because they've been forced to work with people who have different ideas, you know, whether it be people of color or, or anti-racist whites. And as a result of working together, fighting FERC and fighting the pipeline company that wants to build on their land, We've seen, I mean, I've experienced it, that people go through some changes. They're exposed to things and exposed to people and ideas, and they come to see maybe that, you know, some of what they've been thinking or have been taught um, or been acculturated into isn't maybe right, and they, they start to change. So that, that's kind of a fascinating aspect, really, of this particular wing of the movement, because there's certainly a significant chunk of us um, who are anti-racist, who get it on kind of intersectionality and the need to link and connect a lot of issues, um, that it's not just the climate crisis, it's not just, uh, you know, people's land right there on a local area. There are bigger issues involved here in terms of the way power works wow. uh, and the need, the need for people to come together and get organized to fight it. Yeah, well, I have to say, even though 
Uh, we didn't set up this interview for this segment. I am going to use this segment for my monthly segment called The F Word because whether we're able to talk about it in depth or not, what you're talking about is what we talk about on the segment, which is corporations having such control over the government or working hand in glove with the government to the point that their actions are indiscernible. And, and so that's what we've been talking about in this in this segment. I heard this man recently from Colorado, I think. He was talking about just what you're talking about. He was talking about his land being seized by eminent domain for a fossil fuel project. The fact that he could not even challenge it in court. And I, I just think that for most people, like you said, that will join together people from the left or the right. It's so blatant. It's just so blatant. And and is it also blatant in terms of who is on, on FERC? I mean, the last time I, you know, we had conversations about this and I was also talking to Josh Fox and other people when I first started the show. The people on FERC were also like former, weren't they also like linked to the oil and gas industry as opposed to? Yeah, Yeah, most of the commissioners, the vast majority of the commissioners um, who have been at FERC over the decades, you know, FERC goes back to, I guess, 1978 in terms of it being called FERC, but there actually was, went originally back to 1935 and the, uh, the, the federal Power Commission, I think that was what it was first called. But so this this agency has been around a long time, although the vast majority of it, the vast majority of, of you know people in the United States have never heard of it. But you definitely hear about it and you experience it. If a pipeline or a gas compressor or an export terminal or some other uh, fossil fuel infrastructures is being planned to go across your land or in your community, that's when people find out about it. But anyway, the um, yeah, the reality is that the vast majority of the commissioners um, have come from industry. A lot of them go back to industry after their term is up. Same with staff. So, yeah, it's a whole shell game, you know. It's a whole shell game. No question about it. Well, hold that thought. This is On the Ground. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. Effects and black. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para revolución hey. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para liberación Ayo, hey, ayo, hey, my heroes are young lords Adored and ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets, people were killing each other so they on the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación or Muerte. Liberty or death to their last breath. Fighting for those that have less. Although we mad stress, we still blessed. Still stay blessed. 
I'm inspired by the strength of the people. From the streets to the steeple, we all equal inspiration. Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente. Lo que usa en su mente para revolución. I'm inspired by the strength of the people. From the streets to the steeple, we all equal inspiration. Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente. Lo que usa en su mente para liberación. Ayo, ayo. Estaba en un lado con la luz apagado. Desde el hermano, así su palabra están enterrados. Desde la sangre de los incas, aztecas y mayas lo llevan much higher. Como Malcolm y Che Guevara categorized together. Equals liberty over the weather before it started forever. Somos soldados, lo llaman no malo. Pero solo queremos que los niños crezcan y entiendan su lesson. O sea, que guessen. Ahora es el tiempo. Yo no te miento cuando confrontamos problemas muy graves. Los convertimos a animales. Oye, amigo, ustedes no quieren problemas conmigo. Uno solo hace lo que le da la gana. Y quien gana cuando un parte de gana no tiene nada. Repítalo. Uno solo hace lo que le da la gana. Y quien gana cuando la migra se lleva a mi hermana. Uh, I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa su mente para revolución hey, I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Ted Glick, veteran climate justice activist. And before the break, Ted, you know, we were talking about this win that will demand that the Federal Federal Energy Regulatory Commission Respect the right of organizations, communities, and individuals to oppose these unwanted gas pipeline projects and other fossil fuel infrastructure projects in our communities. I wanted to ask a little bit about the process. So when people want to oppose one of these infrastructure projects, for example, have they already gone through some type of local and state process before they get to FERC? Or is FERC almost like the first stop that people have to make? Well, in terms of infrastructure, you know, FERC has overall responsibility for the U.S. electrical grid. That's kind of its primary issue, regulating that, trying to have supposedly fair and efficient mechanisms in terms of how it works, etc. But another key thing that it does, it was given the responsibility of making decisions about natural gas, methane gas, frac gas. Um, they were given the authority, the responsibility of making decisions about the expansion uh, and the regulation of, of that particular industry, uh, the gas industry. And so the cases that they take um, have to be interstate. They have to involve at least two states where a pipeline is passing through. Um, if there's a, a pipeline uh, in a or some other, you know, uh, electrical or power-related uh, entity uh, that's being proposed to be built, and it's only in one state, then FERC is not involved. FERC doesn't come into the picture. It's when, it, when it's interstate, when it goes across at least one state line, that's when it's necessary to get a federal permit. I ask because I think on a state level, people are are also catching hell when I suppose there is a pipeline project that is only within that state. I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and I, you know, almost like cry to think about how that state, the beauty of that state has been so polluted by mm-hmm. the fracking industry there. So I was reading a piece that you 
wrote in Common Dreams, and you gave a lot of credit for these recent wins, these court victories for you maybe Duke and Dominion backing out of their Atlantic Coast Pipeline project to the movement for Black Lives and the uprising right now around this country against racism. And so, I mean, as a lifelong activist, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about the energy that movements get from each other. That's not something that I could necessarily um, kind of defend as a fact. It's it's kind of a conjecture, but it, it's, you know, it's I think I guess I'd say it's an educated guess. The thing that I was saying was, you know, have all the you have these the KXL victory, the DAPL, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline victory, and then this Atlantic Coast Pipeline victory, and then you also have this FERC decision. All of those happen with, within one week. So it's like like I'm saying, most likely you could you could you would expect that this was just a coincidence. But I went on to say, as, as you're referencing, that maybe it was more than that. That this whole uprising, this political uprising, you know, led by uh, black people uh, and by, by the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for black lives and allies and so on. That is just like, I mean, it's incredible what's been happening since uh, the George Floyd murder in terms of the, the breadth and the depth and the extensiveness and the, and the staying power of this movement in so many areas of the country that it's like gone into like, like I, you know, the fact that NASCAR outlawed the Confederate flag. To me, that's like, what? <laughs> that and, 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 Miss, and Mississippi, Mississippi has now made illegal. They're like to, replacing their flag. I mean that that that's a mass movement. I mean that's a mass movement of the kind that you know brings about revolutionary changes. But it has that that extensiveness and staying power and breadth. So I, I'm I'm saying that maybe it's within this context that these decisions were made, and it, it seems to me to make sense um, that that. Reality that movement had an impact on maybe some of these judges, you know, mm-hmm. some of them who were kind of progressive or liberal. Maybe they felt buoyed up, more willing to kind of you know do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And looking at it otherwise, maybe the decision of the of Dominion and Duke to call quits as far as the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, you know, could have been influenced to some degree by again seeing what's happening in the country politically in this, this movement, that they, that they know that the Black Lives Matter movement has a similar orientation in terms of progressivism, as does kind of the movement against fracking and pipelines and FERC and so on. So yeah, I, I think there is a connection. can't be really proved, but I think it makes sense. But, you know, in fact, the movement for black lives includes environmental racism as part of its platform. And when you look at the we had a woman from Union Hill, the community in Virginia founded by, you know, formerly enslaved people after the Civil War on uh, last week's show, uh, just talking about how important it was for her that this pipeline not come through that town. And I suppose, you know, even before the whole fracking boom, when you really look at the uh, historic towns in Louisiana that have been besieged by the oil and gas industry, they're polluting the whole cancer alley. Exactly. When you look at the, the legacy of that pollution that, you know, obviously environmental racism and the whole movement against racism and it's real, they're really one and the same. You know, yeah, whether, you know, you're, you're totally right. There's definitely those kind of interconnections. 
in general, yes, and specific in terms of the Union Hill community, as you're saying, and, and there are, and other communities. There's a Lumbee, the Lumbee tribe has um, definitely been very active fighting the ACP in, um, in southern North Carolina, right on the border with South Carolina. Um, you know, and there's certainly other instances of, uh, you know, people of color, you know, indi- certainly indigenous people in terms of fighting the uh, KXL pipeline and the code ac- access pipeline. They were very much leaders in those fights. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Totally. I guess I want to end up with this. I know you had a program on Thursday where you had representatives from the Lumbee Nation and also you know, other people impacted who could be impacted by these recent wins. So um, give us an example of how maybe one group or community will be served by this, uh, these rulings and how their longstanding fight, they may win some of their longstanding fights now. Well, uh, I think that, again, the primary uh, new development um, is that groups can now go to court uh, literally on the 31st day. You know, after they file their administrative appeal, uh, they can then go to court, no matter what FERC does, whether they postpone it or not, on the 31st day. So that's very helpful. Um, getting into court, doesn't certainly you can't count on the courts winning, you know, all the time winning, but compared to trying to get FERC to do the right thing, it's a much better, you know, I, I call it a much better a terrain of battle. Um, I do think also from the standpoint of just morale, and kind of people's energy, you know, you, you need, you know, in a movement, you need victories. I mean, it's, it's hard to keep lots of people involved if you never win anything. Mm-hmm. So win, winning not just one victory, but like these four, right, for the Court of Appeals victory over FERC and then the three pipeline uh, victories, that's really important in terms of giving, giving people a boost and giving, a, giving people a sense of possibilities, that it's not hopeless, even though it often feels like it is that it's not hopeless, that if you stick with it, you just keep plugging away, constantly assessing, trying to figure out what you can do better, how you can get more people involved, etc., different messages, how you can get better press coverage, all these different things that need to happen that you you can win. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really do believe that. I I do believe that uh, not just in terms of this, this fight against uh, pipelines and infrastructure and and, and climate uh, catastrophe that's really facing us uh, right now, not just there, but in terms of this genuine, fundamental, progressive change, revolutionary change. Uh, I think it's possible. I, I see that. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And I'm thinking of this map. I can't get it out of my mind. I guess that's the power of the visual and, and art, but really kind of drawing out almost how many pipelines were being constructed across the United States. And I'm thinking about this because of this process of tolling and how FERC has been doing its business. I mean, can you give us any sense of how many projects or communities have been basically rolled over by this process and how many projects that you can think of just offhand? Are we talking dozens, hundreds, thousands? No, we're definitely talking hundreds of individual separate projects. I mean, I know there are hundreds of organizations um, that you know kind of make up this kind of you know disparate, you know, somewhat connected movement. So, no, we're definitely talking hundreds of, of pipelines over the last uh, ten years or so. Maybe, probably, many hundreds. Actually, here's the figure. I believe that 
since 1999. This was an article in Politico. Since 1999, FERC has uh, approved, uh, I believe it's it's over 400. It might be as many as like 479 is the figure that's coming to me. 479 proposals for, for gas industry expansion. Um, since 1999, they've approved all but two of them. And one of the two that they didn't approve, uh, they approved it a couple of years later after the company reapplied. So that's how many over 20 or, 20 or so year period, almost 500 uh, separate projects applied for. I believe the figure is about 10,000 miles of uh, pipeline um, have been uh, approved over the last 10 years. Not all of it um, has been uh, constructed yet because there, there are victories and there, there are ones that have been held up. But it's a big deal. It's a very big deal in terms of what they have done. And they still want to do it even though they're in big trouble. I mean, the oil and gas industry is in really big trouble, and so is the coal industry. They're deeply in debt, deeply in debt. There's bankruptcies <clears throat> that just keep uh, growing, particularly the coal industry, but also increasingly in the, uh, the frack gas industry, no question about it. There's a number of, I'm not sure, it could be at least 100 bankruptcies of some of the smaller companies being then kind of bought up by the bigger ones. But uh, there's there's really huge um, underlying uh, serious problems for the fossil fuel industry as a whole in terms of the economics and the fact that renewables are coming on so strong mm-hmm. and are uh, cleaner, you know, they don't pollute the air, they help people's ability to breathe, they don't get asthma, um, and of course they are much better for the, the earth in terms of stabilizing our climate, hopefully. Well, these issues are so critical, but we will have to leave it there for today, but definitely continue this discussion and conversation as we face this very infrastructure, bureaucracy, and undemocratic machinery of climate crisis. I've been speaking with Ted Glick, who has spent more than 50 years as a human rights activist most recently as founder and activist with Beyond Extreme Energy, and before that as national campaign coordinator with our friends right here in the DMV, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. He has a new book out, Burglar for Peace, Lessons Learned in the Catholic Left's Resistance to the Vietnam War. Thank you for joining me today, Ted. Thanks, Esther. I really appreciate it. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and to Colin Michael. And thanks to all the people checking out our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Everum. That's On the Ground, W. Esther Everum, on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our pages, and our website have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. Of course, you can also listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us there as well. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. The music we play this hour included Race Babbling by Stevie Wonder, music from the new video, Middle Finger to the Law, by the Black Joy Experience performing at the Black Lives Matter Plaza here in Washington, D.C. Inspiracion by Conrado Maluk. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.